Hello, everybody. Welcome to another continuing conversation. If you were with us last week, wow. We know that the Utopia Planitia book dropped about three to four weeks ago at this time. And last week, we had all the writers come on board to kind of give an overview of this book, which I'm I'm risking to say might be one of the most popular books uh, that, that, that Star Trek Adventures has pumped out so far with the cross with STO. Well, today we're continuing the conversation. Um, I'm Michael Dismuke with Continuing Missions, which is the number one fan site for Star Trek Adventures RPG, uh, in addition to being a freelance writer for Star Trek Adventures. Um, and today we have with us, again, a cast of writers about certain chapters we're going to be focusing on today in Star Trek uh, for the Utopia Planitia book. Um, but let me first introduce, of course, Jim Johnson, and then you'll go ahead and uh, make sure to pass the baton to everybody else, and then we'll get started. Yeah, will do. Hi, everybody. Jim Johnson. I am the Star Trek Adventures project manager and line editor for Mendivius Entertainment. Uh, I'm partly responsible for bringing this group of people together to write on this book. So uh, I am uh, very excited to talk about this at, at further length, because this is a big book for us. I have had a lot of fun, a lot of work. Boy, a lot of, lot, a lot of work went into this one. Um, and uh, without further ado, I want to introduce my fellow panelists, and I'll start alphabetically first name with Aaron. Aaron, I'm Aaron Pallier. Um, I'm the science, technology, and starships guy. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did a lot of work on the book, I guess. <laughs> sure did. All right, over to uh, Al. Introduce yourself. How's it going? Al Spader, freelance writer uh, for um, Star Trek Adventures. Uh, and had a lot of fun uh, coming up with stuff and bringing a lot of information together into one place in this book. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. And John. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm the one that likes to write about the history of a fictional universe, and I have a blast doing it. So it's great to be here. Very cool. All right. So we are going to be talking about Utopia Planitia tonight. We're going to do a deeper dive into the book than what we did last time. And uh, because this book is so big, it's 256 glorious pages of Starfleet stuff, starships, spaceships, space stations, just everything you can imagine. We're going to chunk it up a bit. So uh, because chapter four is a very, very meaty chapter full of space frames, we're going to save that for another episode. So today, tonight, wherever you are in the world, whatever time it is for you, we're going to talk about chapters one, two, three, and five. So we're going to cover everything in the book except for chapter four. And uh, I'll be kind of taking the lead here, although uh, my, my group here will certainly chime in with uh, commentary. And uh, I think it probably makes sense just to, uh, to start right in. Now, I think last time we talked about kind of like general high-level overviews, reactions to getting involved in the book, what were you excited about, et cetera. So we're going to not rehash that because we've already done it. Go watch that episode mm -hmm. again if you want to hear more about that. So let's just jump right on in. Um, 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 uh, blah, blah, blah. Thomas is not here tonight, so we won't talk any further about the forward. I think he pretty well covered that last time. So we'll just jump. Uh, we're we're going to skip the introduction because who cares about the introduction? I wrote it. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's just, I care. It gets you uh, it gets you warmed up and excited about the book, hopefully. Um, I had fun putting together the essential viewing sidebar because it's always fun to have a list of episodes to go reference, uh, especially for those of you who uh, may not be that familiar with Star Trek or the game. And this is just a good way to give you a, a short list of uh, approximately 20 episodes to go binge 
and watch. They're all good. They're all fun. So go check it out. Uh, plus a couple of movies. Dropped a few movies in there. Uh, anyway, so let's just jump right into chapter one. This is uh, primarily, uh, if I remember right, it was John's chapter using a couple notes from Aaron initially, but mostly mm-hmm. taking it taking it upon yourself to uh, to go crazy with it and have fun. A lot of great history here. I've heard some great comments from fans saying uh, they were impressed that we were that you were able to compress 300 years of Starfleet history into about 10 pages. So, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, expound upon that. How'd you do it? What was your approach? What did you like? What did you hate? Um, you know, t- tell us about it, John. Uh, I think the first thing I want to go with is to say, yeah, um, 300 years of Starfleet history, 10 pages. Um, I think Aaron and I, we did a great job, but it's kind of one of those things too, where it's like so much hit the cutting room floor. Um, mm. Cause one, when you're really passionate about it, you just kind of want to just keep going. And um, there's always that part when you're a writer, when you realize that it's like, man, I just wrote like, like 700 words. And I'm talking about like Endorian fleet movements. And I'm like, and this will appeal to like three people. One of them's me. And just the, the moment when you have to be like, okay, let's just, we'll just dial it back, dial it back. And um, really it's just Aaron, just who handled, you handled like the first like two or three pages of this section. Am I right, Aaron? Uh, maybe not that much, but like the, the first bit, like this humble beginnings and the first part about USPA, there was part of my original pitch to Jim back in like 2019 for this book, I I had already written that whole chunk out and um, I really wanted to focus in on showing what the difference was between our world and the timeline of Star Trek, like how it started changing. How did we get to Khan in the 1990s? You know, how did we get to this, um, spacefaring civilization even before World War III because there were interplanetary spacecraft even before World War III in the Star Trek timeline because Mm -hmm. Khan's on one of them, (laughs) a DY-100. So I wanted to talk about some of the differences that popped up. Yeah, it still looks like our our timeline quite a bit, but you have a bit more of cooperation between the U.S. and the Soviets and the space race. Um, The Soviet Union doesn't fall apart. We, we learned that in next gen just from specific um, starships dedication plaques. So things, I, I just want to clarify and ask you oh. to expound on this. For those who are listening and don't know what it is, USPA is United Earth Space Probe Agency. So this is kind of like the NASA of the Star Trek timeline, I would say. Is that right? So it's yeah. Sort of, sort of. Yeah, it, it's complicated because you have NASA. That's in the 1960s. You have the European Space Agency. You have Roscosmos, which is the Soviet one. But um, they all kind of come together into an international one before World War III. And then after World War III, USPA starts up to try to get in contact with space probes that were lost during World War III or missions that were lost contact with during World War III. What I liked about, I want to say what I liked about this, and again, for people who are going to, game masters who are going to be using this, we love those going back in time adventures. And for new players and new game masters to Star Trek, it could be confusing because it is a divergent timeline from the 60s. I I almost think like For All Mankind, better the TV show For All Mankind on Apple Plus, better represents Mm -hmm. what the breakoff was in order to become the Star Trek universe, right? And so you could take a paragraph from this and go back in time to one of these paragraphs in your Star Trek show. And I I, I was like, ooh, I, I was already imagining stuff based off this write-up. So very helpful information right there, I thought. 
so I'll, I'll, you know, I wrote the little high in the sky quote because I wanted to show that humanity, all of humanity wasn't just torn apart by warfare, that there were humans out there trying to like stop or, you know, to cry out for peace and then everything else that's John. And that's, that's still a really important message, I think, just from the intro chapter. I mean, because I think some of the things that we tend to forget is that Star Trek really has a lot of optimism to it. And pretty much the beginning of this chapter is right after humanity's darkest period. And it gets a little bit brighter. And then it, there's the threat that, you know, like, um, not to use a cliche, but um, humanity's dreams are almost ended before, like, they have a chance to come to fruition with, like, the Romulan War and uh, forming the coalition of planets and it's just trying to get all that to the the reader in a way to just give them all these ideas because i think the last thing we wanted to do was to write a chapter and that was just like um, a history test because you know that could be fun for but for most people it's sort of like all right when was the federation founded you know when was archer's world discovered and so from a lot of players they'll just glance at that and then move on and the trick here was trying to figure out a way to take all that history, compress it, and nail all the high notes so that everybody loved it. And mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the editors did a great job with helping us with that. Um, but yeah, like um, uh, like I said, as a fan, because I'm a huge Trek fan, you know, thanks to my mom, um, it's just been so great being able to look into the history of it. And I, I'm a historian. I, I actually work for a historical society. And so being able to set aside my real world research tools and then going through my encyclopedia of Trek, going through, you know, memory alpha, going through the previously written Star Trek adventures books and just being able to look at it from that kind of mindset and figuring out what I, what hopefully the fans really enjoyed. And that covered a lot of material pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking about, um, early Tellarites and Vulcans. We're talking about the wars between their civilizations. Um, we're talking about going from, you know, the kind of like the militant galaxy that we see in Enterprise and then going into the galactic Cold War that is uh, the 23rd century. Um, and then the more optimistic, more um, hopeful galaxy of the 24th century. Um, and yeah, it's it was a blast to write. Real quick, did any? Uh, if we do, let's go do a go around on this chapter. If everyone had a favorite piece or something that stood out that you would want people to like know going through this, we can do go around through all of us. But John, what's one thing maybe you say? Hey, pay attention to this paragraph or this box. I really love doing the little captain's logs or the log entries on the side. Um, they're just a lot of fun to do, and. Um, covering the airing of grievances uh, before the Klingon High Council from when the Grissom was destroyed. And yeah. I, I did that a lot for like the Klingon players who, you know, because this was a mainly Starfleet focused chapter, but being able to touch upon, you know, the events of Star Trek three and the explanation afterwards, because the Grissom gets destroyed. And then the hearing how the Klingons dealt with that from a very brutal political-esque nature. Um, but also it was just so much fun talking about um the different types of navies i mean the andorians the tellarites the vulcans um that, those were my favorite sections yeah your one on the grissom made me want to go back and do like a 12 episode rpg leading up to the grissom's destruction like let's play the crew what what were they doing before they got blown up i think that'd be like kind of funny anybody mm -hmm. else uh aaron al jim anything that you when you got this chapter you're like oh that was good you need to highlight to you I, I oh go ahead Al go ahead 
Yeah, I was just going to say um, just a little bits in there about the um, Romulan war and um, some pieces about the Romulans manipulating other species to do their bidding and stuff like that. It really mm-hmm. kind of like laid this foundation of like this secret society that is manipulating people to do their bidding. And I thought that was really cool. Like that, that idea. That was so hard to do because so in all the years of Star Trek's been on the air, there's some conflicting things. When we first encounter the Romulans, they use uh, atomic weapons and um, subspace radio to communicate and you never see them, which is a really cool thing for what you think is going to be a limited run sci-fi series. But when you're talking about a grand war and it's like, wait, so there were no boarding actions like the Klingons never hopped on a Romulan cruiser and said, hey, you look like Vulcans. And so figuring out a way to, to make it more believable without doing hand wavy magic. Um, it, it was really challenging, but I think people will enjoy it. What about you, Jim? I saw you had something. I, I was going to wait for uh, Aaron to add anything and then I'll, uh, I'll expand oh. a little bit. Yeah, no, I really like the um, piece of art on page 16. For, for whatever reason, like that just gave me joy seeing that because I, I love Daedalus mm. class starships and I love seeing like oh. racks of missiles unloading. Mm-hmm. from them are those missiles or escape pods to, they're to me they look like missiles because right. they're firing out of all of those ships and only one's actually being struck by a weapon yeah, yeah I, I, know. Thought those, I thought those were escape pods i to I me i one. think those are like atomic missiles that would, either way that would be cool if they were atomic. yes i was looking at my own chapter on my ipad as <laughs> no really i mean cool, i though. It's it's a dynamic picture, you know, it's at an angle, so it looks like uh, it's in motion. There's light, there's ambient light, and then there's the light from the weapons. I, I, I thought it was a really cool, just a really cool picture. Um, now, th- that being said, obviously, war and fighting isn't all what Star Trek is at all. It's just like, you know, 5%. But I just thought that was a really dynamic, interesting picture. I agree. One of my favorite ships, too, Jim knows. All of you in the future will know why it's my favorite. <laughs> Very nice. So uh, I, I wanted to just note that, uh, you know, this isn't really an Easter egg. It's just an observation. Uh, for those who've been following the game from the beginning, you'll know that starting in the core book and then working our way through all the different supplements, uh, we've been gradually in, in, uh, moving the timeline forward, you know, book after book after book, with the exception of the uh, Discovery campaign guide and the, uh, I guess, the tricorder set, right? We've been gradually adding more er- eras of play and stuff onto it. And this really kind of brings it up right up to... Uh, Star Trek Online and Picard, right? I mean, obviously, we started developing the game even before Picard came out. We didn't even know Picard was a thing, I think, in 2017. I think we found out maybe a little bit later. Um, but, you know, this this brings the, the, the game timeline up to 2410, um, although we're able to go back and forth, you know, into the, into the prehistory as well. And so, like, if you were to read the books, like, kind of in order of release from the core book through the, through the quadrant books and then into the other supplements and then to here, you'll see, like, a... We, we stitch all of that stuff together, um, it, not necessarily always perfectly, but like there's there's stepping stones throughout all the different books. And so if you take this book and you combine it with like the uh, the history sections in the player guide or the game master guide or the history sections in the uh, discovery campaign guide or in some of the other books, like what you have is a, is a tapestry of just great Star Trek history. And there's so many plot hooks here. Like uh, you were talking earlier about how you could use a paragraph from this book and do a time travel episode, right? Well, you could just as easily take any paragraphs out of this book um, and and run a whole campaign just on that, right? You could do um, early Enterprise era, you could do uh, Discovery era, Strange New Worlds, uh, the original series, so forth, so on and so forth, um, just because there's so much content here. In fact, you could probably even do 
and I'd love to hear somebody do this, right? Just given the amount of tools that you have at your disposal, I would love somebody to do like a, a, a USPA campaign before the NX, before enterprise, mm-hmm. like, like, like just after, you know, the Phoenix takes flight and, uh, and like that, that whole, like, it's not even, um, it's not even early Starfleet, right? It's, it's, it's like getting on a warp Delta and uh and seeing what you can do right before archer creates the warp 5 engine and uh, goes forward like that would be a really interesting campaign right there could, uh, so have, could, could some humans during the uspa era have gone to vulcan yeah probably yeah. so they could have well, been maybe serving or or consulting on a vulcan ship and been involved in vulcan adventures maybe yeah, yeah. And, and and you could kind of set the you could kind of set the vulcans up as the antagonists right because they were kind of like Holding the holding humanity back, you know, putting us on a short leash, you know, and uh, and and there could be a lot of political inter inter stuff going on, and uh, I mean, there's just a ripe pile of story that, story there that could be played with. Well, As we'll anyone who knows my story, too, excuse me, I just want to keep on that line. Whereas Al, you pointed out the Romulan stuff, I pointed out the box on page twelve about guided advancement with the Vulcans, and I personally, anyone who plays in my game or knows me knows I don't like Vulcans. I don't trust Vulcans. I prefer Romulans over Vulcans. So I was like, ooh, this was a perfect seed, that box, because some humans, and I think rightfully so, to your point, Jim, were like, the Vulcans are holding us back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that alone, exploring that back in time, oh, that would be an amazing uh, throwback campaign. Well, yeah. here's here's the thought about that era. We know that um, that Zephram Cochran retires to the Proxima Centauri colony. There's a colony already set up on Proxima even before NX launches. And that means there was a whole bunch of USPA and boomer ships going between Earth and Proxima Centauri to set up the colony. And, 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 and again, spoilers, one of the things that got cut from Chapter 4 was the first proper USPA starship that would have gone out and done exploration of the nearby star systems at low warp speeds, but still. Will, will, will we see that on continuing missions? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> okay. yeah, but it's not canon. It's not canon. So I right. mean, that's that's why it got cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it makes sense that you could easily set up a campaign there. Mm-hmm. And also it's, it's about like that era is also about when like, it's not just that humanity discovers the universe. It's the universe discovers humanity. And we see how it leads to the Romulan War, which is like, you know, where the Romulans decide, no, we've got to nip this in the bud. But, you know, just learning about how, like, the, um, the first encounters with the Andorians, where they get it from the Vulcan perspective, you know, where, where you know, Michael's just like, I don't trust the Vulcans at all. And when we first see the Andorians, they're like, hey, we're being spied upon. And the Vulcans are like, we're not spying on you. And then that's when we learn Vulcans lie. Um and it's it's such a really good era. And I've always loved Enterprise. Um, I think Enterprise gets like really maligned by some fans. Um, but I've I love the just how we get to see humanity growing and all the the new technology, like when we first see a replicator for the first time in Enterprise. And it's really such a rich era to explore. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then uh, so this is a ham-handed segue, but I'm gonna take it since it's since you threw it out there. Uh speaking of uh, of technology. I want to um, just th- kind of, it's not really an Easter egg because it's, I mean, it's very clearly in the book, but I, I don't want um, readers don't sleep on pages 21 and 22. So we wrap up this chapter with a, a little bit of a look ahead toward the 25th century. So like we're, we're coming out of the 24th century. We're coming out of the stuff that we know really well, you know, next gen DS9 Voyager, uh, lower decks Picard, and we're kind of heading into this new 
uncharted canonically period of time where we don't really know what happens in the 25th century. Now, certainly Star Trek Online has done a, a lot with the early 25th century, uh, but like the 25th century into the 27th century and then even out to the 32nd century is just kind of a gap because, you know, the producers just haven't gotten to it yet. We have a sense of what happens in the 32nd century, of course, because we have two seasons of Discovery with a third on the way to kind of talk about. We see we see the technology there and we see the technology where we are. And, and so now we're starting to kind of like look ahead what's possible, what's coming. And uh, I think you, you did a great job adding some technology in here, kind of like suggesting what's what's to come. It, it hints hints at some of the stuff that's in um, Star Trek Online and then just other things that are possible. And so I want to just encourage readers, like if you want to take your Star Trek games into a place that is really, truly uncharted, where, where nobody's gone before, take advantage of some of this new technology and come up with some mechanics with your group and then do cool shit with it or cool stuff with it, excuse me. <laughs> uh, but uh, Aaron, uh, uh, John, Al, uh, Michael, uh, any thoughts on some of this technology? Anything here that called out to you as something that was worth uh, exploring further? Anything that you wished you had gotten more information on? I think for me, it was really just remembering what my ships had in Star Trek Online. Um, and, uh, but no, it's just in Voyager, we see how Starfleet radically evolves after the Dominion War and mm -hmm. a blade of armor, transphasic torpedoes, um, the slipstream and transwarp drives. Um, I, I think it's really cool that to see how this technology continues to grow. And even in the show, in the show, we go all the way into the far, far future. Um, and that's why I kind of like I had to put in that sidebar where I didn't want put um, I didn't want the players to feel like that all their problems would get solved by miracle technology, and that eventually you know like kind of like how the old show changed and we went from little colored gemstones on um, a, just on a console that they just pushed and then they said oh no the shields are going down and then we get all the way to essentially a bridge full of touch screens and iPads. Um, I think it's just important for players and, and game masters to realize that technology in Star Trek is always going to be whatever serves the story. Yeah. I think to that point too, I know we've used on our game, um, the one I play with Al and Aaron and a couple other people, the integrated holographic emitters. We, we kind of were a test bed for that. And what we explored was the problems it causes along with the good things. So some people may say, oh, I want to load up my ship with all this, but you can have an entire couple episodes just based off the problems that this technology, in our case, um, the holographic emitters were taken over and they had multiple uh, insurgents who are holographic insurgents taking the crew hostage. That's and so, so cool. The, and, and so the commanding officer, the, the first officer made the decision to strip the whole ship of it, except in a couple key areas, because they're like, this is too easy to be to be used against us. So the looking at a paragraph like that can create an entire adventure in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, one of the, one of the great, I, I don't know, I guess, it's a, I guess it's a trope, a little bit of not just science fiction, but Star Trek is like, give the characters some cool tools and then immediately have something go wrong with it, right? I mean, Voyager did it early on when they had the bioneural gel packs catch a cold, right? And then there was something wrong. There's there's a whole episode right there. Like you could you could string that along for several episodes. So yeah, take advantage of that. Have fun with it. Um, cool. All right. So uh, that's uh, that's uh, chapter one. Again, it's uh, it's uh, I felt it was necessary to have this in here to kind of like set the stage. Like here's Starfleet. Here's where we are. Continuing the timeline of the game, and then also just providing just a ton of great uh, plot hooks, story ideas technology like in and again in 10 pages like how did we manage to do that i don't know but uh congratulations because you made it work <laughs> like, yeah. like my, my job as an editor was relatively easy 
Um, although again, like I, I always, I always feel the pain when I have to cut something to make it fit because, uh, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to do that. But you know what? Also, we can't release Word documents as a product <laughs> as much as I'd like to. We got to have the got to have the look and feel going on in here. So, um, all right. So let's uh, let's jump into uh, chapter two then. Life in Starfleet. So we spent a lot of time chapter one talking about the historical perspective, getting getting the readers grounded into Starfleet. What star, where has Starfleet been? Where is it now? Where is it going? And of course, where is it now is entirely dependent on where you set your game. Right, that those 10, 12 pages of history, you can set your campaign anywhere in there, or or ahead of it, or behind it, or whatever. Um, or you could, you know, time jump all over the place, like whatever your campaign is. Um, but no, well, not but. And uh, presuming that you're running a, Star, a Starfleet campaign, Starfleet, you know, as a whole doesn't really change, right? We've seen it throughout all the series. Starfleet is pretty much Starfleet from from early enterprise all the way out to 32nd century discovery, like the, the core components of it don't change. And so we thought, well, you know, here's an opportunity to kind of expand further on the content that we gave you in the player guide and in uh, some of the other products and say, okay, let's, let's dig deeper into what is it, what is it to be in Starfleet, right? What, what does it mean? And, and, you know, we extrapolated a lot of this. I'm assuming we'll let the writers talk here in just a moment, but, um, there's a lot that you can infer from just watching the episodes and the TV shows and everything else. And just like pulling on the same history that, that the writers do. I, we know it's clearly based on uh, modern Navy and we know that it's based on modern military services to some extent. And we can pull a lot of that content in and shape it and mold it. Uh, so now, uh, and I will, uh, you know, we hearken, we, we, we hearken on this earlier when we were talking about how we, we don't <laughs> always remember who wrote which section, so uh, I'll be honest, this was such a, um, it was a fun project to work on, but it was admittedly a very much a, a pastiche. Like everybody was writing different sections and different subsections and different pieces. And then, you know, my job as, as editor was to take all that stuff together and kind of like figure out thematically what fits here, what fits there, how does it all make sense? And then try to make some sort of flow to it. Um, I'm not confident that it flows. I have not reread this recently other than in bits and pieces, you know, jumping around. So um, it may not hold, it may not hang together very well, but I certainly think it does. But we'll you know we'll leave it to the readers to decide. Now it's in your hands, now, folks. <laughs> it's out of our hands. It's in your hands. It's your book now. So uh, open question for the group uh, because honestly, I don't remember specifically what section. Like I think I know Michael's style well enough to pick him up a little bit here and there. And Al, you certainly got a good style. Uh, John and Al, you're both very good at kind of like being a style neutral. Um, uh, I don't know what the right phrase of that is, but, uh, um, and I'm not saying you don't have a distinctive style because you're both very, very good writers. Um, but it's harder for me to look at your stuff and say, oh yeah, Elle wrote this or to say, oh yeah, John wrote this. It's just because it's good, solid, clean writing. And it's, it's almost one voiced already. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Michael and Aaron have very specific patterns to their writing and very specific styles. And I can glance at something and say, "Oh, yep, Al, you know, Aaron wrote that." <laughs> or, or, well, now yeah. I'm dying to hear. Now, now, of course, I'm dying to hear what this is. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that'll that'll remain in the purview of the editors, and I won't I won't uh, spend time going into that detail. But uh, rest assured, um, I love everything that you all do because I keep coming back to you to write more. So that's if nothing else, that should be uh, you know confirmation that you're you're doing all right. So no worries. <laughs> but I'll stop talking now. I want you all to talk about chapter two. Tell me what what did you love about it? What did you find challenging? What did you find interesting? Uh, what are some of your highlights that either you personally worked on and have had an opportunity to work on 
or uh, things that are in the chapter that you thought, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I forgot about that. And I'm glad that it's in the book. So I, I don't care what order we go in, you know, uh, figure it out. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll start it up, Jim. Um, this section uh, started becoming one of those things where, all right, I want to write one specific thing about a duty roster. And I started doing the duty roster. And then all of a sudden there was other things that started popping in my mind. Well, if we're asking or, or suggesting that players should know what their character is doing at any point during the day, we should give them other locations and whatnot uh, within the ship and how to use those as part of their daily routines. Um, you know, I think some of the most interesting episodes of Star Trek happen when characters aren't at work, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And they pulled in or something weird happens to them and things like that. Um, so that's why this kind of starts off talking about what, like a bunch of questions to ask about your character um, and how uh, would your duty roster look like, uh, or like your, um, uh, like your daily schedule, like what's your routine? What time do you wake up? What shift are you working? Um, you know, what do you do on your, you know, what time do you get lunch? That type of stuff. Um, we thought that that would um, help you uh, both envision your character on board the ship and also help make a connection to the ship um, and give you some additional ideas uh, for story uh, and plot hooks that happen when you are not at work, um, which uh, is, was a very fun area to write. Um, and it spilled into, well, we need to talk about the bridge. We need to talk about the computers. Like we need, like it all, like just started like snowballing. Um, and, uh, it was the day in the life of it. It was all, okay. When you're not firing photon torpedoes or being attacked by Klingon radar raiders, what are you doing? I, I worked with, I collaborated with Aaron on the part on computers. And I remember mm -hmm. I used to listen to Star Trek and I would hear terms like algorithm, subroutine, cascade failure, L cars. I'm like, ah, what's the difference between all that? Mm -hmm. So I said, well, let's go ahead. And if someone's picking up this book for the first time, let's define these words that you're going to hear almost dropped every single episode so that they can kind of know the techno babble if they want to use it. Um, and also all these things like manual overrides, security overrides. We said, oh, the original book, I went installing a subroutine. We hear that almost every episode. But there's no game mechanics for that. It was written. I said, wow, this is so common. It has to happen. And then I went over to Aaron. I'll let him talk about it. I was like, and then computers evolved over time. And I said, I'm not fit to write this. I knew Aaron probably has it like memorized. So I gave it over to him. And Aaron, what did you do with that? Well, yeah, I, I did the the sidebar, at least in the computer section of, of computer technologies by era. And I know I had done... Um, a big chunk about computers in the Discovery campaign book, um, mainly because I've I, I've tried to put together in my head at least all the stuff we've known about computers in the Star Trek universe from all the series, and I've kind of theorized about how exactly all these things work and what the terminologies are. So trying to summarize all of, all of the junk that's in my head into this little sidebar was was fun. You know, trying to go okay, well here's semiconductor computers like we have today, microchips and all that and why duotronics came about you know what's the big deal about duotronics and why was it all chunky looking like it was in the original series compared to the sleek flat screens that we have today and iphones why is it chunky well there's reasons for it and then what's the difference between duotronics and isolinear systems and why do we have bioneural gel packs or 
why is a positronic brain a thing when, you know, a positron is actually a piece of antimatter? Well, obviously references back to Isaac Asimov and obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I don't know if you if you haven't read Isaac Asimov's robot series, then, well, OK, it comes from that. It's it's a term from that. But I tried to, like, give a reason why that might be uh, called positronic in there. Anyway, I went on for a while in that in that uh, sidebar, and that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from it, which helps. I think there I, I want to call out before we move through this section, too, because I don't know who wrote these sections, some of them. But. I, I, one thing I appreciate about this gym, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it really took common terms and broke it down. Who, I don't know who wrote the one on heading. I think that was Al about, yeah. So maybe, can we talk about that? Cause you oftentimes, why did you write it? Let me just ask that question. Well, then. Sure. well um, my, my main character is a con officer and I happen to have my uh, next generation technical manual out. And one day I was listening to, uh, I, I don't remember what uh, Star Trek show I was watching, but I heard them announce the heading. And I'm like, how does that work? And I happened to have had my technical manual in my lap and I was looking through and there was this awesome picture and a good description on what it all meant. So I said, well, if I don't know what those numbers mean, it's possible that other people don't know what those numbers mm-hmm. mean. Mm-hmm. So we decided to get it in there for con officers. Um, to use the language and um, to explain, you know, their positioning and, you know, their heading and whatnot. Yeah, this is Utopia Planitia. So we got to know everything about the ship, right? And and what it means. I thought that was beautiful. That inspired, there's a lot of controversy I've heard over the years too. So um, I was happy it got in the book. There were two different things. One was why do my maps not match? And so people who are new to (laughs) Star Trek, you're going to hear a lot of guff about these different maps that get produced over the years and mm-hmm. I had such succinct pleasure trying to make sense as to why it doesn't make sense. I don't know if it was, I don't, Aaron, I have that's Aaron or John, if you all read it or Al or Jim, if, if, if it's, if people could digest that and it was a pretty good sell, I, I was curious. I thought it was good. Like I didn't work on this chapter and I loved all of it because it reminded me, and I'm saying this in a very positive way of the old Star Trek magazine from like the late nineties. And I just loved going from each section. And I know it might seem weird when it's like, oh, we're talking about bridge duties and this is a duty roster and this is maps. And I'm like absorbing all the info. And I'm like, this is good. This is good. This is good. So I thought it, it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And that was the same thing between moving at the speed of plot because I said, okay, well, let's make it technical for the people who want it technical and make an extended task or an extended consequences, which I think. Al, you invented extended consequence. Oh, no. Was that Nathan Dowdell? Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Dowdell created extended consequences. So that got wrote in here. So again, plot's more important than being exact, which was the point of it. But we need to give people some arguing points online when they're trying to defend, defend their stance. I was like, let's give them some, some points to argue. Along with along with the heading thing, some really common stuff to remember. And I don't know if it got into the book. I, 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 I was looking around for it that, you know, you hear the terms port and starboard. There's a really easy, easy, easy way of, mm-hmm. of remembering all of it. Port is on the left because port and left have four letters each. And the red blinky light goes on the left because it also has the fewest number of letters. So starboard, right, green. Oh, that's how I learned it. (laughs) If if that makes it, it makes a difference. Yeah. Why do we not, do we have a chapter on that? We should have, did you, it's just, that's what the blinky lights are for. 
like yeah. the, that's navigational lights. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, Jim, I do want to throw in. I do want to throw in one little thing here because when we write this stuff, we don't know what the art's going to look like. We every now and then we get to write an art brief and of something that we'd like to see. Um, so when I opened up this chapter and we were talking about the bridge, and I saw all these bridge diagrams, I like lost my mind. Yeah, uh, I thought cool. it was so cool because um, it was unexpected, and yeah. you know, it, it was really really cool. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, well, a, a I'm glad that I'm still able to surprise you, even though you worked on the book with me for months, right? Um, but uh, I mean, that's just part of the the, the weird magic of of doing RPG books like this. Is like you you work on the manuscript for so long in Word or whatever whatever program you're doing, and then once it's all done, you hand it off to the layout artists and the graphic designers, and they take it into InDesign or whatever program they're using, and that's when they add the the lay they add the layout, they add the graphics, they add the plant-in images, they add all this other stuff. And then like, you know, you know, six weeks or however long it takes them to lay it out. I get the draft, the first draft of the layout. And I'm like, I get really super excited because it's like a whole new book, right? It's, it's like, I, I've been staring at the manuscript for months and I'm sick to death of looking at Microsoft Word documents now, but now I get to see something completely different. It's like, whoa, my whole, my whole world goes crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm glad you like the, the bridges. Like I, I always intended from the very beginning of developing the outline for this book that I wanted to get some sort of schematics into the sh into the book. I didn't know what they were going to look like exactly because I knew that we would have to go find some artists and uh, we managed to find an artist to provide some renders of, of some key ones. Um, I wanted to do more renders, but we just didn't have the, the space for it. And then in talking to Lee, who did the layout on this book, I was like, well, what, what's the middle ground that we can do here? And he was like, well, how about we do the three renders that we, we commissioned and then I do deck plans of as many bridges as I can stuff into here. And I was like, yeah, go, go for it. Give it a try. So uh, hopefully we'll get Lee on here sometime, Michael, to talk about the, the graphic design of this book. Um, but um, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to pack as many in here as I could. Uh, we managed to get what, uh, eight in here? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight on these two pages. And then he, uh, he managed to sneak in the, um, I think the Oberth shows Oberth. up later in the book. Uh, either the Oberth so or... Or the reliant no Miranda's in here, so it might have been the Oberth that he snuck in later. You know, so we, we so in totality we got a whole bunch in here. So I was really glad we could do that because I know the bridges really matter to 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 fans, but also to gamers. And uh, that was the point I wanted to make about the whole chapter, kind of as a whole. I know we'll talk about more of it here in a second, but um, as uh, as role players and gamers and game masters, we need a certain depth of knowledge about the setting. And the and and how things work, right? And to to the extent that you don't always get to see on the show, like on the different TV shows and the episodes, they'll kind of infer things about how things work, or maybe they'll drop in a nugget of like, oh, that's how it works, and then that, you just add that to your storehouse and knowledge about how Starfleet works and how life on a ship works. Um, but like for me personally, when I'm when I'm role playing a character, like this is the kind of depth of detail that I want. I may not use ninety percent of it in my in my game, but my character knows all this stuff. Right. And if my character knows all this stuff, then that's what's important because that's what I can hang stories on or, or, or it helps my, um, you know, my, you know, performance, as it were, of, a, of my character. Right. Because all this lore about Starfleet it matters to them. It may not matter to me as much, but uh, uh, just all this knowledge and all this detail that we've been able to add into the books um, really should be able to help you with your role playing. But then for game masters, it should be able to help you come up with plot hooks and plot ideas, too. Because this is the, everything in here is a thread that you can pull to make things go wrong or to create drama or to create conflict or something. 
Uh, so uh, as, for me, as a as a for, as a forever forever game master, sometimes I get that way. <laughs> but pretty much another thing I was thinking about is as we were playing Star Trek Adventures over the years, is things that would come up that sometimes would defy my plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I said I have to write in game. I have to give the game masters tools they can use to have sensical explanations why things can or cannot happen. So like on, do we take the shuttle or transporter on page 39? I need to give game masters a list of plausible reasons why they may have to take a shuttle or they may mm-hmm. have to take a transporter. Cause sometimes I can really ruin a plot. If, yeah. if people are just transporting in and you needed them to crash land, for instance, to drive the plot. So um, those are some of the, and I know that um, I think Al or Aaron did planetary landings and that, stuff that like was that. that was me yeah okay for the same reason yeah for the same reason well it's one of those perennial questions can my starship land on a planet and I'm, and it was always like to me the answer was always sure if it works for your your game do it because in the end every starship that we've seen has ample thrust to be able to do whatever the heck it wants to do in a planetary atmosphere so why not um, and then they would say, well, wouldn't it just kind of lean or, or do whatever? Well, that's what thrusters are for. And anti-grav is, you know, there's gravity manipulation on Starfleet vessels, even back into the 22nd century. It's, it's fine, you know, but if you really want to put down rules for it, if it has, I put down my rules that here, here's the general gist of what you should kind of consider if your ship really is designed to land on a planetary surface or not. Yep. Um, all right. So, uh, Al, I want to ask you, I think you wrote the bulk of this piece of it, but uh, I, wanna, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the uh, the section on downtime on a ship and uh, some of the tables that you dropped in here about uh, story starters and uh, the, the random tables that you dropped in. It's always fun to have a random table or two just to make things interesting, especially when, when role playing. So just any, any thoughts on that little little bit? I'm pretty confident you wrote it. So correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, like I, I do love my random tables quite a bit. Um, and uh, it was fun doing some research to find some pretty obscure uh, games and whatnot. Um, but I, I just again, I think that a story where you're trying to save a Cosmozoan from um, space hunters is every bit as intriguing as. Uh, two characters discussing, um, you know, uh, what happened during a war uh, or um, characters processing their feelings about, um, you know, their parents, things like that. Um, so that's kind of where I was going with the idea of downtime on the ship. Um, you can have plenty of stories happen when you're not on the bridge, when you're not in engineering. Um, and a lot of these um, activities are you're really your uh your moments that drive character development um because your characters uh when they are doing action sequences and giving commands and things like that that's when you're doing your job and yeah you can spice it up a little bit with you know a catchphrase or something like that along the way um but the really intriguing character development happens when you are uh processing or interacting with other individuals on the ship um, so I wanted to provide an arena for um, people to use um, to tell some of these stories in uh, a, a way that um, maybe you don't necessarily think about all the time. But there's no question that the trope of the video game that sucks you in is a sci-fi trope that we've seen on Star Trek multiple times. Um, you know, the the trope of uh, going to um, the sparring gym to release your anger 
happens mm-hmm. all the time. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and if you use those to develop a character um, or multiple characters that might be having a conflict, um, you know, that was, that would be really interesting for your story. Um, I, w- I mentioned today on Twitter that, uh, you know, it was really inspiring. Uh, I was thinking about actually an episode of Battlestar Galactica uh, where there's a boxing match between two friends. Um, and some people might recognize that reference, but like it really showed how much these two friends missed each other, but also how angry they were with each other for becoming separated. Um, and, you know, I think that that the power of those stories are really important to get into a game. Yeah, Absolutely. Great stuff. No, really great insights. Really appreciate it. Um, so moving on then, let's wrap up the chapter here. Uh, Michael, I'm pretty confident you wrote the last two pieces of it, uh, the resource collection and then the uh, salvage and retrieval operations. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what, what got you to um, to write those bits and uh, what what do you think, uh, what, what, what value do they bring to uh, not just Utopia Planitia, but to your, to your games in general? Yeah, anybody who knows me knows Voyager is my favorite Star Trek series. Um, and we've talked about that ad nauseum in the game master's guide and in the player's guide, I had the opportunity to write the chapters about those far from home campaigns and some of the issues that people would deal with that. And so I was so happy when you asked me to do this section because I was like, oh, I can totally expound on what are the problems deep space missions could actually have. Um, you, you know, I could expound all day about this because I had so much fun dealing with what kind of resources I, I had to do a lot of research in the star trek manual memory alpha online to determine which kind of chemicals and resources and minerals are likely not easily replicable um and so why you might have to need mining operations for that and then i always have this conversation with aaron aaron's the one who educated me about it was deuterium it's the one of the most abundant things in the universe so i had to really think like okay well they're always needing deuterium almost like every third episode they're looking for deuterium so i was like i have to come up with some plausible excuses as to what circumstances might lead to you needing deuterium Um, it's just heavy hydrogen that's all it is i mean it's not the most common thing in the universe but hydrogen is and you can make heavy you can make deuterium with particle accelerators i mean i think it was more they needed it to generate the power to replicate things. So without the yeah. power, they couldn't replicate more deuterium. I well, think. yeah, you have one of, one of the things, see, this is where it gets into technology. Like you use your Bassard collectors to actually sweep up uh, hydrogen while you're traveling at warp and the energy that, I mean, the Bassards like energize it all and then it's going to collect in the Bassards and you're already sweeping up deuterium with that. So that so, helps power exactly. your fusion reactors. See, so I had to write, based off of this and my five years of conversation, is it five years, maybe three years of conversation with Aaron about it? I said, for example, there could be a massive leak in the deuterium storage tanks or the warp nacelles and ram scoops are severely damaged. So I had to yeah. give every, I had to give the yeah. GM reasons why they may need some of these, what might be common. Um, and, and so I just really wanted people to, again, get into the mind spaces. Hey, you know what? You can have adventures purely because you don't have resources. And this could drive you even into negotiating with other species for things you need. I, I think, honestly, that it's good for your players to sometimes be a little freaked out that they're in outer space. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they should sometimes be worried about air and you know, uh, life support systems and food. I, I think you can't have it all cushy. Like we never really saw the enterprise in that situation. 
we never saw that situation, especially TNG. They were plush living. And I just think you can't really be boldly going to the edges and just be cushy all the time. So I think there had to be some really good detail in here, Jim, about resource collection um, and and how to drive a plot along that. Mm -hmm. Kevin, Kevin Smith called the Enterprise D the, uh, the shopping mall in space. Because <laughs> exactly. exactly. it had carpeted yeah. floors and lights everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think this chapter is a good example, not, not, not just the resource collection, but maybe the yeah, more so resource collection is a good example of taking this that that sub chapter and combining it with the, the notes um, about uh, running a, a deep space game or a far from home game where, where, where your ship is like literally pulled like you just take them completely away from the Alpha Beta Quadrant away from any any star base, any well known resources. They're on their own. They're literally on their own. They've got to figure it out. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll get lucky like Voyager got and have, you know, constant um, adventures every week where they encounter a new, you know, Class M planet with a spacefaring civilization where they could probably stock up on the necessary materials they need. But if they're really, truly like, uh, I don't know, like, you know, Gilligan's Island, like out there on their own, no chance of anybody coming to help them, then they've got to, it's, it's like the old, um, oh, I, this may be a bad example of the 18th century Navy where they had to go kind of fend for themselves to find uh, lumber and uh, resources and water and food and stuff if they were stuck out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, like you're really, if you're really truly trailblazing, then you need to be able to gather resources on your own and, and synthesize it and process it and make it usable for you. So mm -hmm. I thought this chapter would really tie into that. And uh, to a lesser extent, salvage and retrieval too. Michael, we'll talk a little bit about this chapter. That was a lot based off of my love for Starfleet Corps of Engineers book yeah. series. I, I really love Starfleet Corps of Engineers. And by the way, thank you. I don't know who did it, Jim, but on page 47, like Al's reaction to the art on his, the fact that on page 47, you have these three art pieces where you're zooming in, scanning a planet for mining resources. I was like, oh, that's just beautiful. That made me really, really happy. Um, but again, this was all plot seeds and extended tasks um, having to do with um, when you come across derelicts and just basically these could all be B stories that would open up a captain's log like, hey, we're currently in the Zardoni system retrieving a Klingon bird of prey that's about to drop into the atmosphere of a pre-work civilization and give them like a B plot. But then go ahead and throw a module on top of that. You know, I just wanted opportunities for them to see what it's like to work in space. Um, and that's why the salvage and retrieval, you know idea came up with that and then there's a bunch there's a bunch of uh, uh uh encounters one of them i dedicated to Day dayton ward because in his book he had a horda named twalk and so i actually created um an encounter in here and it's kind of to honor dayton's dayton ward's work uh with corps of engineers and stuff nicely done yeah, we, uh, we, we do try strategically to drop in references to the novels and the comic books and all the other secondary uh, canon out there. So this was, you know, nice, nicely done, Michael. I, uh, I smiled when I read it. And uh, I don't know, did you tell Dayton about it? or uh, I, you... sent, I, I, think, I think I may have sent him a, a Facebook messenger. I'm not sure. I'll nice. check. Yeah. Very nice. Cool. Good stuff. So yeah, chapter two, chock full of great stuff for your games and for your players and for your game masters. So uh, spend some time checking it out. You know, certainly don't feel like you need to read it, you know, cover to cover or, or uh, you know, very closely, but there's just so much great material in there to, to play with and think about. So, all right, let's jump over to uh, chapter three. For the most part, this is uh, Aaron. I think this is mostly your, uh, your brainchild. And uh, the, the mandate that I had for you was to uh, 
you know, create a complete starship building system. Like, you know, take all, all the notes that were in your head, because I know you've had all these notes in your head and on paper and scratch paper and stuff over the last five years as you've been developing all the starships uh, for the different products. And then I, I said, okay, now we need to codify it <laughs> and we need to make it make sense and we need to be able to explain it in a, in, in a way that was easy for people to follow. So uh, given, given that challenge, um, what, what did you do with it? Well, I, you know, starting, starting with the core book back, back when we did that, there wasn't like a codified system yet. It was more of like, hey, I want to have my, my, my base starship was the TOS constitution. And I wanted to try to make stats that made sense that would give like an average amount of, well, like a, let's just say a 50-50 chance of a success with the starship helping you. And then sort of build both forward and backwards from that. Um, and that being said, like in the original core book, those rules hadn't really been codified fully yet. It was more of like Aaron's gut going through it and trying to put stats down. And then when I started, I don't know, let's say two years ago, three years ago, when I started trying to really get solid about how to build a starship, even before I pitched this book, it was more of me looking at the stats and going, okay, did I have something down in my head that I just hadn't really written down? And it turned out that the stats were very close to a, a system already. So that worked. Yeah, I'd have to change some of the stats, some of the, some. Of, I'd have to tweak things a little bit, but it turns out that my gut was actually running formulas at that point, even, even before I knew it. And I started throwing things into this chapter, but like all of it isn't just math. Like I, Al, Al wrote some of the stuff in here, like some of the tables and, you know, how to make your ship meaningful. I think, I think Al, you did that, but I, I, one of the, one of the first things in there that I wrote that wasn't really ship creation was ways to bring your ship to life. Because I, I really do feel like you need to have your ship being a character in your, in your game and in the TV show and any ways that you can make your ship feel like more than just a thing in the way you describe how actions uh, occur or like how a special effects shot, let's say like, Hey, I'm going to describe this, this scene that we see on our ship. And I, I know in our, in our game that, that Michael runs, I will often go into like, Hey, we do this kind of cool sciencey thing. And then we go to the exterior of the ship and we describe how she acts, you know, as pioneer twists or does this and she stumbles through space and it's it's personifying the ship into a character and you just have to get into the mindset of constantly saying she or he depending on you know your your language of choice um what your sh your ship is going to act like uh I like so that. i like i, I want to say when i read that through that aaron how you wrote it i liked it because i think the player should hurt when the ship gets damaged i think they should take care in keeping with their ship and it's almost like a slice in their own arm when a photon torpedo hits the hole. And I thought that was a really good frame if GMs really want to make the game real for people, is that that you care for the ship like a person. Yeah, and then then the extension is, is our ship sentient on, on page 57, which I was like, okay, well, there's three different real ideas that you can go with. And if you're treating your ship like a character, maybe maybe your ship is a character. And there's lots of ways how to integrate that into your campaign. Um, so that's why I ended it as this book should be considered a player's guide for space frames and treat them like a main character in your show. 
slash game. Because also, oh, like, for the bulk of, like, the Star Trek games, the ship is one of the most critical pieces of equipment. I mean, it is, like, a character. And if your ship gets disabled, damaged, or, God forbid, destroyed, that radically changes the tone of the mission you're on. Because if you're trying to rescue refugees and the warp core fails, you suddenly can't escape from whatever the calamitous situation is. So I thought it was a really good section to cover. Um, and I, I should probably tell like a, a story. When I was a kid, my, my parents always took me to the Star Trek movies when they got released. And I remember going to see Star Trek three and I was really excited. Spock's going to be back. Oh my, you know, and I, I forget how old I was, but when enterprise self-destructed, I cried as a child. I was crying because that was the ship that had all of these adventures that that was the ship that had that lady's voice in that TOS episode when it went to the the one planet that had the matriarchal society. It and she liked Kirk. And you know, I, as a kid, yeah, it really it really hurt me and I just I I bawled and I I remember that feeling and saying, "Okay, well no, yeah, the ship is a character for sure." Here that 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 feeling that you have that after all of these adventures after all these decades of quote unquote life that ship has a personality that ship has um quirks to her you know and and uh al you you wrote down that ship idiosyncrasies like we we kind of talked with each other on that a, a bit like what what can you do to make your ship a little quirky or you know to show that life has happened yeah, there was no better Star Trek adventures, but I'm glad it didn't show up until Utopia Planitia. This this discussion in depth at this point, because I think it just fit the book perfectly too. And I'm sure that there's other people. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sure that there's other people here that felt the same way with when Enterprise D, you know, crashed on on, on the planet. I'm absolutely positive. Or when we were watching Voyager and you saw Voyager slam into the ice planet, and you're like, oh no. Or you know, the time travel episode where Year of Hell. You're just, oh my God, what's what's going on? So, sorry, who 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 said something? Aaron, I was going to say, I also noticed um, that there are some new um, mission profiles in here. Yeah, um, yeah. You want to uh, talk a little bit about um, what you added? It looks like maybe some stuff that could be non-Starfleet as well. Yeah, there's non-Starfleet stuff, but you know, n- not every ship in the Federation is going to be Starfleet, right? You have your legacy fleets. So you have your, you know, the Andorian, the Imperial Andorian Navy. So of course there might be battle cruisers hanging out in the Andorian Navy. There might, there might be fully pleasure ships hanging out in, you know, uh, Ryzen, the Ryzen Navy. So you mean I could play Star Trek Love Boat? Oh, of course. Get Captain (laughs) Steubing's out there. He's great. Um, That would be awesome. (laughs) You know, you have your support ships, but there's also like the espionage intelligence mission profile that I was like, well, you know, Starfleet intelligence is a thing. Everybody automatically thinks of section 31. And I'm like, no, don't think of section 31. Starfleet already has an intelligence agency that actually has morals and they might have ships, you know? Uh, so go with this espionage mission profile um, flagship. It's, it's a bit more of a, a umphy uh, mission profile for, admirals rather than just a uh, diplomatic and uh, the diplomatic profile uh, reserve fleet. So those ships that are almost on their way to the mothballs, but not quite, maybe they've gone from Starfleet service back to USPA or the, the Vulcan high command. They're not ready for mothballs just yet, but Hey, you know what? They might be called back if the Borg make another strike uh, warship, 
the same thing as battle cruiser just a just a slightly different um take on it let's say so yeah and then there's like the station stuff <laughs> i mean all the, all these all these uh creation uh little bits there was a lot that went into it a lot of back and forth went once i had like a whole bunch of ideas then michael you said something or al you said something hey we need to put this in oh yeah you're right the, the other day yeah I, I in order i was asked to do the station profile I, are we calling them profiles or station components is how we called the chapter but um, I had I said, let me rewatch Deep Space Nine, the very first episode. And I got the quote from Jake Sisko. Why can't I live on a planet? It's, a, it's as an old space station. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that, that was a quote that started. But I had fun. I, I worked with Aaron on this one where I wrote the I'm going to call it the profile for the station at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wrote how you would actually suggested talents that would go on a space station like that. But I was funny because I was rereading this after the book came out, Jim. I was cracking up my wife. She's like, why are you laughing? I'm like, because as I go through and read all these profiles for stations, I honestly don't remember where I pulled this out of. <laughs> so I just pulled out of my butt and created all these profiles. And I think, I think I looked into Navy tradition, like you were talking about, Jim. I think uh-huh. I looked into Navy tradition and the different kinds of embassies out there and things like that. And that's where it came from. But as I was reading through it, I was just cracking up. I was like, it's, and then, and then not only that, and then this is when I figured, I always say I'm the average Star Trek fan, but I think I went over the edge on this because not only did I write these, but I found examples in Star Trek episodes for each one of them. I think it's all great. So uh, um, I appreciated that you, that you put it all in there and you know, that I know that uh, Alan, Aaron, I know you put a huge amount of work into uh, pulling together all the different talents Um you know, mission profiles, weapons, even uh, Al, I know you spent a lot of time extrapolating Star Trek online weapons systems into Star Trek adventures, you know, terminology and format to make it kind of make sense and work for us. Um, but it was, it was certainly intentional that we reprinted all that stuff and put it all in one book just to make it easy for game masters and players to reference it. Cause like the, you know, me personally, when I'm playing a certain, you know, role-playing game or other role-playing games, I hate having 30 books on the table and I'm having to flip through finding the two pages for each one and trying to find the references when I'm building uh, like NPCs or characters or monsters or whatever. And, uh, and so like just from a pure usability standpoint, I knew I wanted to try to bring all that stuff together into the same book. And uh, I really appreciate the, um, I mean, I, I know I'm sure it was a lot of cutting and pasting and, uh, and digging into all the different books that we've already done to find all those different talents, all those mission profiles, all that stuff. And then to like make it all hang together to make sense. So, uh, a, I wanted to say I appreciate the work that you put into it because uh, honestly, if it wasn't you doing it, it would have been me, and I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> so I was I was glad to you know give you the ability to do it, and then you know pay you for the word count and all that stuff. But uh, um, I, I also really I was really excited when I was reading the chapter because um, or you know reading and editing it that you 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 didn't just you know provide what we've already done. Right. You added more stuff. You added more talents. You added more mission profiles. Yeah. Uh, you added all that section like Michael added. You added all that stuff about space stations and like all the different kinds of space stations you can build. Um, I, I'm curious, collectively, all of you, um, were you were you thinking beyond Starfleet when you put all this content together? Like, were you thinking about, oh, this could be a toolkit that somebody could create some Rom- Romulan space frames or some Klingon space frames or some packlet space frames or something 
or or did you really kind of have the did you have the Starfleet lens on pretty tightly? Curious to hear I, that. I, I didn't. I did not have the Starfleet lens on very hard at all. Um, I mean, if you if you look at like the system points chart right at the beginning of the creating starships section, um, you can see that I have like well, there's Klingons listed there, there's Romulans listed there like specifically. And it's because I want to make sure that if people do just kind of randomly want to make a Klingon or a Romulan starship using these rules, that they would be comparable to the Federation slash United Earth starships of the time. So they aren't like overly powered or, or too weak. I just wanted to make them so you, so you could make them comparable. But yeah, I wasn't thinking specifically of the Federation. And a lot of the new uh, weapon types, the energy weapon types and torpedoes and whatnot um, came from, uh, you know, Star Trek Online and specifically other species uh, ships. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you see the gravimetric stuff from the Borg and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, so I think that, yes, this is a Starfleet book, um, but we wanted the material to be able to use be used uh, across whatever frame you decide you want to run. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And one of the reasons I asked it is, uh, you know, obviously this book has been favorably received so far. And uh, the natural question that has been coming up a lot is, when do we get the adversaries book? When, when do we get the Klingon equivalent? When do we get the Romulan equivalent? And, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to burst any bubbles here, but I, I just want to, you know, remind the, the fandom of the realities, the ugly realities of capitalism <laughs> that, 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 you know, 99.9% .9 of everything that you've ever seen about Star Trek is Starfleet centric, right? Yeah, I mean, DS9 may have been on a Cardassian station, but it was still a Starfleet crew in charge of it. Like everything about Star, Star Trek is at its heart Starfleet. And that is a very big piece of like what, what it is. Right. And so to, um, to, to make a, you know, a, a product based on Starfleet, pretty easy, right? Pretty easy sell. Uh, mm -hmm. Just you know, from from a practical standpoint, to do something similar to this for literally everybody else, much harder, right? Much harder to justify it to the to the people that I need that I need to justify products to. So, what does that look like? I don't know. Like, it, it might be a, a set of PDF products. It might be nothing, right? It, it, but uh, um, I think you know, except in specific instances, like maybe because we don't really, I don't think we talked about cloaking devices too much in this book. For obvious reasons, because Starfleet doesn't use them except in very limited circumstances. Um, other than very specific species, specific pieces of technology, I, I think you could probably build any number of alien or non-Starfleet spaceships, space stations, small craft with everything that's in this book. And then maybe you like pulling in some additional details from some of the other supplements that we've already done um, or just making it up on your own. Um, you know, certainly correct me if I'm wrong on that, but like if you needed the the overall Star Trek, you know, ship generation kit, I think this is going to do, do it for you. Um, yeah. Honestly, like there was another game. Um, I forget which one it was, but it talked about how they omitted putting shuttles in the book because they said it would just take up too much space. But they said if there was an overwhelming outcry from the fans for a book called Shuttles, 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 they'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it seems like every couple of years they come back on their forums and go, well, no one wants shuttles, shuttles, shuttles. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it doesn't take up very much room in this book, like how to create shuttles or, 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 or do that. Like, yeah. If you want to build whatever you want, it's there. You can, you can use this. If you want to design out a species that is uh, maybe, 
you you think in your head, oh, it's about 50 years less advanced than your typical federation ship. Well, hey, look, there's these years with how many points you get per year. You can just go, hey, I can make a ship that's 50 years less advanced or 50 years more advanced. You know, it's all there. And in yep. the end, the dice decide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, the, the limit is your imagination, really. Yep. Uh, one of the things that I want to make sure that people see him uh, before we move on uh this is a little hidden gem on page 77 uh and it talks about all the attack modifiers uh that can happen if you are making an attack against another ship a smaller ship uh etc cetera, etc cetera, because these modifiers are kind of scattered throughout the core book um so i paid tried to go through and skim that to find all these different things that can modify your roles or, or your difficulty as you are uh, firing at other uh, ships. So I think having that all in one little uh, place in a box uh, is going to be very helpful for especially new players that are like, I don't understand how ship combat works. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this yep. will help. I, I agree completely. I, uh, I remember when I was developing the, uh, the Klingon core rule book, um, I remember we were developing the uh, the whole spaceships chapter for that. We were doing a you know top down revision, and uh, Aaron was working on all the space frames uh, for the Klingons book. And, and I and I realized that you, you're absolutely right. It's like to to get all that reference material together in the same place was really hard to do because like I was you know edit, editing all the stat blocks. And it's like it's like hey, well where's this? Oh, I gotta go on this page. And I gotta go to this page. And I gotta go to this page. And I said you know what? Screw it. I'm gonna I'm gonna fix this chapter so that everything is all in, in one relatively easy to find place. And I'm glad you did the same thing here because it just makes it so much easier to reference everything when you got, you got all the stress effects here, you got all the rules, you got all the key stuff that you need. Now, obviously you still need the core rule book to actually play the game and to like use this material, but like just as a, as a useful reference, this is going to be a huge time saver for me in my games and uh, hopefully for other game masters and other players, it'll be a time saver too, because it's just, so much more convenient to have everything in, in like three pages as opposed to spread throughout a 400 page, uh, you know, core rule book. So I appreciate you. You and I were on the same way, same wavelength in that respect. So uh, grateful for that. Um, I think that pretty much covers uh, chapter three, although I just uh, I also wanted to highlight the fact that um, um, I, and I think Al, I think you did the bulk of the work on the talents, um, pulling in all the different talents from all the different um, ships or all the different books and putting them all together. And then, uh, and then creating new ones for Star Trek on, from the Star Trek Online. I, I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about that. Like, like all the, tell me, tell us a little bit about all that research you went, you put into Star Trek Online, and then translating the uh, the weapons and the talents, et cetera, to make it fit into uh, STA. Yeah, I, I mean, um, when we first learned of the project, and I heard that Star Trek Online was going to be a part of it, I was pretty excited. Um, so. Uh, I've played Star Trek online, but I'm, you know, I, I, I don't, I prefer playing tabletop games to video games. Um, so I had to actually do a considerable amount of research and uh, basically that was revolved around, um, you know, ship upgrades um, and, and, and um, ship abilities. Uh, and luckily they've got an amazing community with some really cool wikis out there. And I would say a lot of the stuff in Star Trek online doesn't necessarily port over super well to the system. Um, but, uh, I think with a few adaptations, uh, we got a couple of cool ones, uh, mm. into the book, uh, in general, especially some of the talents. Um, I've seen some people talking on the Star Trek online, um, discord, uh, about, uh, recognizing a couple of the talents and things like that. So, um, you know, I think, 
when you're taking a strategy uh, uh, game like uh, Star Trek Online and you're doing ship battles, um, it's a lot easier to do when you have a 3D space to play in. Um, whereas, you know, um, it's a bit more of an abstract system in Star Trek Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, if it used a map and uh, things like that, uh, I think a few more of uh, the abilities could transfer over pretty well. Um, but I think, you know, uh, what we got in, I think, was pretty solid. Um, you know, uh, there's a f- talent in here where you can uh, es- essentially drain your shields to give shields to a ship next to you. Um, if for whatever reason, if they're not able to regenerate their own shields, you can give some to them. Um, we took that uh, from Star Trek Online. Um, there's a self-repairing h- hull, uh, which is uh, made with uh, backwards design Borg nanites um, mm-hmm. that basically, you know, in Star Trek Online is like a heal, uh, heal spell of sorts. Um, but we got that in here to make it work as well. So uh, it was a lot of research. Um I wish that I could have gotten more in, um, but I think there's enough in there that uh, people who haven't checked out the game but are fans of Star Trek Online uh, will feel comfortable and confident that their game is being represented in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hopefully it sparks, you know, we, we've talked about this before. When you see the talents in here, don't dead end on those if you're a game master or even a player. Look at them and say, hey, you know what? I can go ahead and create a new talent now because there's enough, there's enough examples in here that I get how it works with the mechanics. I know in our game, we make up talents and focuses all the time. You know, um, it just, it's just, this to me, just sparks the imagination. So this is definitely to Al's point, not the end. It's just the beginning yeah. of where you can take it. Just and, use it as a at, framework. Yeah. And at the same time, I tried to bring in a little bit like in my descriptors, um, a little bit of the lore from Star Trek Online as well, like I do talk about the Iconian War, which is one of the big driving narratives in Star Trek Online, Um, you know, uh, and hopefully we can bring some more of that to books in the near future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the last thing I'll say about Chapter 3 before we move on to 5 is um, I it it took me a long time to edit this chapter. And it's not because of the writing or anything or, you know, know, the cutting and pasting or whatever. But what I found myself doing is because I had the Starships chapter, right? The chapter four with all the different space frames. Um, I found myself reading these different talents and and kind of like going into the into the creative mindset of like, ooh, I could take this space frame and put these talents on that space frame and have this really cool uh, ship and this really cool campaign built around this this particular ship with these particular talents. It's like, oh, and what if I swap out this talent, put this talent in, and change it up a little bit? Because like it. Because now these are like literally building blocks, right? I mean, it's like a it's like a virtual Lego set almost, where you got you build you get your you get your stock space frame uh, out of chapter four or whatever, whichever one you want, or make your own because you can make your own now, of course, if you want to, and then just take you know cherry pick a handful of talents, three or four, whatever your ship's scale is, right, and just see what kind of weird, interesting combinations you can come up with, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like so I, I found myself stopping the edit process and going like, oh, well, if I took this talent and combined it with this talent, what kind of story possibilities does that give me, right? I mean, I didn't even care what the talent actually did, right? Like, oh, okay, so it gives me five points to power or gives me this benefit or whatever. So what? Just the fact that my ship has high-powered sensors, that's a story element that will influence how I tell the stories. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, this ship is state-of-the-art. It's got high-powered sensors. It can do stuff, like, even just beyond the mechanical aspect of it. And that's that's the uh, that's really what I wanted to encourage players and game masters to think about 
um, you know, whatever your history with different RPGs is, um, you know, don't look at this as just the mechanics. Like, how does this thing work in the context of the game? Like, think about the role-playing potential, too, of all this stuff. Because these talents, like the way Nathan designed this system, um, is it's, it's certainly there's a mechanical element to it. But there's a gigantic piece of the narrative here, too. The ship is a character. And, and like, you're, creating, you're, you're selecting their talents, basically, just like you'd be selecting talents for your character. And, and they matter, right? They really do matter, mm-hmm. especially because they, they don't swap out that frequently. I mean, certainly you can do get advancements and milestones and stuff and swap them out, but like, um, you know, take advantage of all the, all the plot hooks and story seeds that are built into these talents and space frames, et cetera, and, and lean into that. Cause that's really what Star Trek's all about is a great story and, uh, and characters and ships going off and, and doing cool stuff. So anyway, enough said about that. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> I know you've heard it all before. So we'll head into the last chapter here. So the last chapter, Game Mastering, Chapter 5. Uh, this is uh, two sub-chapters, optional rules, and then mission briefs. So uh, I know that uh, most of you contribute, contributed to the optional rules because that was really kind of a grab bag of, um, I, I think in some cases, it might have been stuff that we just couldn't fit into the Game Master Guide or the Player's Guide, or it might have been stuff that we thought of after we had already done the player guide and game master guide and we said, Oh shoot, I wish we had included this or why didn't we include that? Or why didn't we include that? And we're like, Oh, well, you know what? We have a Starships book coming up. So if we can, you know, rejigger it a little bit, we still have time to fit it into that. So uh, talk a little bit about some of the optional rules that you came up with and uh, <laughs> as they uh, made it into the, into the book. Sure. I'll start with the quote again. Cause I, I actually, if you asked me just to do quotes for all the books, yeah. I would love it. Cause then, I, but I opened it up by God. I want everyone to notice that's God in quotations. Okay. Um, and it says this starship, could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? I love finding quotes from Star Trek five. That makes me super happy. Um, Cause most people will not want to remember. I shouldn't say that many people of all, the movies. Remember it. of all the movies. <laughs> of course. I love it. Um, but one of the pieces I wrote for this, um, first of all, again, kudos on the Oberth Bridge Station on page 230. We will be using that, Jim and Al, uh, <laughs> at some point. Um, but I did the section on jury rigging, um, which, again, I thought was super important because I think oftentimes players or game masters might get stuck. Like maybe there's a huge breach and engines go down. But we see happen all the time, especially with Scotty, right? He'll go grab a different system, take it apart, and rebuild it. And so I know in our game, we've done that before, where transporters have to be sacrificed in order to get the power grid back online. And so for two games, our characters will not be using transporters. Um, And I thought that had to be in here as an element so that if your ship suffers a major breach there's still an option to get the ship up and running Scotty style. So I thought this optional rule about jury rigging and even do you want to build a shuttle, which is a dedication to Tom Paris and the Delta Flyer, needed to be in here with mm-hmm. rules for, for both of those components. Yeah. I just want to add a little non-sequitur here that when when I read the, the, the draft on jury rigging, I was so excited because one of my absolute favorite bits from the original series is, uh, is the episode The Galileo 7. When uh, mm-hmm. when when the shuttle crashes on the planet and 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 Scotty and Spock and McCoy and and the and the poor uh, red shirts that are with them, <laughs> they have to figure out how are we going to get off this off this ball of you know, of off this rock right and and like you know Scotty takes literally hand phasers and figures out how to jury rig those things to drain the energy mm-hmm. out of the phasers and convert it into a, a power source that would power a shuttle. And I was like, you know, of course, when I saw it the first time, I was like, I don't know, seven or eight. And I was like, 
oh man, this is so cool. The engineer <laughs> is amazing because he's able to take the hand phasers and turn it into like a battery for the shuttle. How does he do that? That's so cool. And of course, it's you know Scotty being Scotty, but that was the immediate very first thing that came to mind when I was reading this this section is like, oh, now we can be Scotty. Like everybody can be Scotty if they want to be Scotty. Of course, you can be Bolana Torres or any of the other engineers too. But um, just that that TOS moment sprang sprang to mind fully formed, and I was like, yes, now we can we can do that. And this like it's it's probably completely outlandish and completely you know unreal realistic given real world physics, but just <laughs> you know why that just shows you what's possible, right? Like if an engineer says to the game master, oh, you know what, I've got three phasers. I'm going to convert the power sources in the phasers into something that I can use in the shuttle. What's the game master going to say? No, no. You're going to say, yes, you know, here's your, here's your, here's your task and here's your mm -hmm. difficulty. Go for it. Why not? You know, we, we have a character in our game played by Aaron that give him a tricorder and a phaser and the guy can be build a weapon of mass destruction. So it's like, <laughs> he's constantly jury rigging and things always go wrong. So that was part of the, if anyone looks at the rule set in here, not only do you have a jury rig penalty box, but there's also now rules on, you know what? You're most likely going to have this thing blow up in your face after a couple of rounds because it is jury rigged. And I think that yeah. creates a level of suspense, which is fun. It, it might work for a little bit and then my character gets set on fire. And that's, <laughs> awesome. that's, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> His beard goes up like every episode. Yeah. <laughs> I think Al did the. I think Al did the next set of rules about maneuvering a ship. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where we wanted to collect things together in this book um, that we could use. Um, that's where this idea came from. Um, you know, how do you move from one zone to the next? Um, what does it mean to go to warp? Uh, things like that that are kind of scattered throughout. Um, the the core rule book um, and even some of the stuff from the uh, science division book I was able mm -hmm. to bring in here um, like when talking about all these amazing stellar phenomena that uh, Aaron makes uh, for the books like the severity of them uh, and how that might impact uh, someone who is piloting the ship um, we talk about uh, cover and like um, you know uh, asteroids slash debris fields um, and how difficult does that make uh, uh, and kind of pulled that all together on a, on a single table for quick reference. Um, so not only uh, can a player know what their role is going to look like to try to avoid uh, this anomaly or these asteroids, but also a GM could look at this list and say, Oh, I'm going to give them a class three nebula to try to navigate through, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that was really the point here was to kind of collect all this stuff that's out there about navigating the ship and piloting the ship and bring it into one location um, so that for easy reference. And love it. And then I finished love the it. chapter with diagnostics and maintenance. Um, again, I, I, I'm now seeing I have this perverse um, interest in making things go wrong on a ship. <laughs> and, and I've written all that, all that re you're lacking resources and you're salvageable and you're jury rigging and your diagnostics. This part was actually inspired by one of my most referenced parts of the Star Trek technical manual, which is I've always had to look up what's a level one diagnostic, what's a level four diagnostic. Mm -hmm. I always had to go back and look because I was always with my players trying to figure out how much time these things should take. So that's what inspired the downtime for maintenance roll table on 237 so that I get I use this with my players all the time just to slow down the game and give some pacing to the game um, in addition to talking about the diagnostic modes and what they look like 
And I'm really into creating, like, I think sometimes a GM will say, man, they're burning through my game really fast. And so there's a box on manufacturing trouble, but you don't want to tell your players you're doing that. You want to do it in a very convincing way. So as my team knows, I'm not adverse to spending threat in very creative ways. In fact, today, Aaron was playing and he had to face a level 11 difficulty challenge due to how I use threat, which made them have to go in a whole different direction. Um, And so there's a whole box on how to do it and make it believable. Again, these are all tools for GMs so that players don't feel like you're cheating. You're actually using the system. So there's some optional rules you can drag in for that. Yeah. I'll just uh, throw in a shameless plug for the command source book. Not that I'm trying to sell anybody on it, but like we, we uh, or I, I included brief descriptions of each of the diagnostic levels in that. Um, but if you don't want to look at that book, I would encourage you to go straight to the source and get yourself a copy of the Next Generation Technical Manual. If you don't have it already, I'm willing to bet it's on everybody's shelf, uh, yeah. at least on this call. Uh, but if you're a fan and, you, uh, and you're curious about the inner workings of a, of a starship, man, you can't get a better resource than that. Like, I, I love Utopia Planitia, but like Rick Sternbach, Michael Kuda uh, collaborated on that tech manual. It's still in print. It's been in print for 30 years now. And there's a reason for it because it's really good. It's a really good reference. So uh, go find it. I'm on my uh, I'm on my second copy for because the first one got so dog-eared and worn out that the pages fell apart. Uh, I still got the pages stacked up on, on the shelf, but I had to get a new I had to get a new copy that was bound up a little bit better. Um, so uh, so yeah, 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 it's great to have this extra extra context. And uh, right before we go to the talk about the mission briefs, Michael, I just want to say that um, you know this this book, it, in addition to all the space frames, right? It's just all these extra rules, all these extra options, all these extra tools for you to drop into your toolbox as a game master and as a player. Uh, even like if you think about like the Shackleton book, there was a whole chapter in the Shackleton book about uh, spatial anomalies, spatial weird things mm-hmm. going on, things that you can drop into your game to make it more you know dynamic. And just like you start combining all these different tools spread across the whole line, you've got just a wealth of material here to play with. I mean, we could literally pull the plug on this game tomorrow mm-hmm. and you're, you've got enough material to last you decades and not that we're going to do that trust me and i don't want to scare anybody <laughs> we got we have plenty of plenty of runway ahead of us yet um but anyway so yeah you take advantage of all the rules and I, I guess i'm really aiming this at the new players to the line who don't aren't that familiar with it and who might be listening to this just there's just so much cool stuff out there to, to play with any book you pick up you're going to find something worth uh, worth using but uh, all that being said let's uh, let's wrap it up here michael and talk about the mission briefs uh, I'll be the first to admit, setting this up, that uh, as we were going through the manuscript and I was doing my job as project manager and editor, kind of evaluating like all the great content we had, like where's my page count? How's that going to fit my budget? Can I afford to print all of this? Do I have to cut back, et cetera? Um, there, was a, there was a thought process that went through my mind a couple of times where I thought I would need to cut some pages and be strategic. Uh, we had to cut a couple of space frames. Uh, mostly because we didn't have the rights to do them, which is okay. Uh, Aaron overwrote, which is a-okay because Aaron always overwrites, but I'm okay with that because he just gives me a wealth of options to work with. But uh, the mission briefs would have been the first easy place to cut because we do the free mission brief packs. And I knew this content would never get lost. We would just you know release it as a separate mm-hmm. product. But I made the budget work <laughs> and I was able to include them. And I'm glad I included them because it's just that much, it's that many more tools that you can uh, that you can use and play with. So, um, Michael, why don't you, I know you wrote all these, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about this, uh, about this new set of uh, mission briefs here in Utopia Planitia. 
Sure. And I just want everyone to know too, if you don't hear from John, it's because his power, he was having power troubles. He texted us and he had, he, I think his power went out finally. So uh, thank you to John in case you watch this back for joining us. Hopefully you get back on before, mm -hmm. before the end of this taping. Um, I want to say, I, when you asked me originally, Jim, to do these mission briefs, I assumed they were going to be one of those free packs. So the title of it was, she'll always bring you home, which was one of Admiral McCoy's lines in the first TNG, he was passing over the handle to data, basically, you know, and so um, I was happy you kept the quote, you treat her like a lady, she'll always bring you home in here. Um, because really, it goes back to what Al was talking about earlier, and Aaron, when we were talking about sentience, I, I said, I need to create 10 briefs that make people appreciate the ship. And I wanted it to be that you could play 10 in a row, though, and it would feel like an episodic um, TV show. Mm -hmm. So, so I really dug deep on this one. In fact, I can't go into details about them because Aaron and Al are playing through them right now. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I forbid them from reading this section along with all my players. I said, oh, that's not great. Read this section. Yeah. But um, it, they're in the middle of one right now. So in fact, let me, let me ask them right now, just they're in the middle of one right now. They're about in act two of our thing. How, how is it giving you a view of the ship in a different way? Uh, I think it's it's making the ship feel claustrophobic in one way. I think it's an interesting way of making the ship because normally when you're in the ship, it's like there's all these possibilities. We can go anywhere. We can do anything. But right now it's kind of like, no, no, we're not. We, we can't go anywhere. And the ship is closing in around us. Yeah, and I. I yeah, I think I think Aaron, you nailed you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Is that like essentially we have entire floors of the ship that we can't access, we can't travel through, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I know that I've been looking at a lot of our intrepid diagrams uh, to see what the floors look like, where things are. You know, um, you know, it's really like to one point, like we talked about you know, walking on the outside of the yeah. hull to get to one section of the ship, you know, things like that. So like, it's really giving you an appreciation of um, uh, just more the layout and the design of uh, the ship that you're in. And uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. We've, sure. we've done our, we've done our EVAs and trying to describe how even in Star Trek moving in space can be dangerous and you should use tethers and you don't make sudden movements. Otherwise, you throw yourself around and it's not a good idea. So this makes me happy to hear because that is exactly what I wanted with the end of the 10 mission briefs. I wanted the people to have the ship be tangible. I want them to understand how important, say, deck five on an Intrepid is when you have the medical bay or section mm -hmm. deck seven and eight, which are the cargo bay. I wanted people to be able to basically deconstruct their ship. And so... And in you know, in 10 months when we get through all 10 mission briefs, by the time I, I think this crew is gonna be like, whoa, we know our ship like the back of our hand. We know all of its components. So I designed it really to celebrate all the components and workings of um these Starfleet vessels. So if you're playing the Utopia Plenty Ship book and you're picking your ship for the first time and you play through these mission briefs, you're gonna be doing what Al did and you're gonna be pulling out those schematics. And um, I, I hope it. I'm glad they're playing through the first one right now, and they're they're getting that. I can honestly say that I've taken um, Turbo Lift for granted up until this episode. So, um, you know, it's uh, when you can't use a Turbo Lift to get from one place to another. It's it's intriguing. It's it's been a lot of fun.
Yeah, it calls back to Star Trek Five, where they uh, they didn't have the turbo lift, so they were literally climbing up the ladders, right, up and down ladders, and uh, that's a, a whole different skill set of uh, challenges, right? So you're not using, you're not relying on, uh, you know, your reason or your intellect. You're all about fitness, and uh, <laughs> and just do you have the the strength to to climb up thirty decks or twenty decks or whatever it is, right? And that I seem to remember. I seem to remember at least one episode last season, Michael, where a tubby Tellerite had to climb up multiple decks worth of uh, <laughs> Jeffrey's tubes up and down because the turbo lifts weren't working too. Oh, and, and imagine if you take out Jeffrey tubes and transporters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so basically awesome. that's the mission briefs is I challenge the ship systems. I challenge the schematics and I challenge how in love people are with their ship. And so, mm -hmm. um, let, let's hope that they meet the goals. And people, of course, write us your play reports and continuing missions. We'd love to hear how these turn out, um, especially when everyone plays them differently. So that was the goal of that, Jim. Yeah. And then uh, just my, my last word on the mission briefs here. Uh, for those of you who've been following along with the with the life of the line, uh, we brought in mission briefs in the, uh, the Klingon Core book. And uh, every mission brief is effectively a standalone episode that you can... Uh, you know, add, modify, change to, of course, but each one was written to be intended to be a single episode. And uh, with the release of the the last mission brief pack in um, in July, and then Utopia Planitia here in August, um, these these mission briefs bring us to uh, over two hundred discrete episodes mm. slash standalone adventures in Star Trek Adventures. So if you're new to the game line, in uh, in five years, we've produced more episodes than. Uh, any of the Star Trek series, <laughs> right? So like, uh, you know, next gen DS9 Voyager, they had like 178, 179 episodes a piece. We're, we're well over 200 at this point. And now, you know, you might want to say that's a cheat a little bit because the mission briefs are only one page, but you know what? It's a complete story on one page. And uh, I'm just, I, I, I didn't really appreciate it until I saw your updated uh, list on continuing mission of all the different missions that are available now for Star Trek Adventures, uh, not just the full length standalone adventures in all the different products and by themselves, but also the mission briefs. Because we're we're packing ten of these into a pack, right? And uh, it's just. And I want to remind cool. people too, because there's so many, yeah. and we've talked about it before. I now play two mission briefs at a time. So right now we're actually playing one from Tony Pie's station-based games while playing one from Utopia Planitia as our B story. So so wow. because I want to play everything, I have no choice now but just to combine as many as possible <laughs> to create create uh, get through them all. So it's really yeah. fun. Or, or you just need to start running another game and have two games going concurrently, and then you can uh, you can cover everything. <laughs> if I retire early, if anyone would like to, if, if tw you know about twenty people want to supplement my annual income, I'll be more than happy. <laughs> well, you can know, my so oh, you can, can do I? that. <laughs> you can do that with Patreon. Get yourself a pa Patreon or something, and uh, uh, I don't know. I'm in the Bay. I, I don't, I'm in the Bay Area, so that's quite a, a income. Decide. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> if I moved to North Carolina. It's done. There you go. Uh, Aaron, apologies. I oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for trying to. I wanted to point out two pieces of art. I love the art in this section. Like, sure. I, like the first one's 232 because that's that's one of uh, from my my uh, drawing deeply from the well adventure. I saw that and I'm like, yeah. God, I still love that piece of art because I had I had sketched out those critters at one point yeah. and sent it in and somebody actually like realized that yeah uh those creatures and my 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 original drawing was so doofy and that just looks beautiful great and then the one on the next page uh it is so full of easter eggs Which that i am uh 233 oh 233 
the the Hermes. Yeah, it, yeah, that is so full of Easter eggs that people that know well that love Hermes class should actually recognize a lot of the text <laughs> that's at the bottom. Andorian shipyard. What's FJSPH? Can, can uh, Jim? Can I say? Uh, I don't. I, I don't see why you couldn't. I mean, it's not. Uh, it's Franz not Joseph. Yep. Franz Joseph Project Saladin. Yep. From the old, uh, I don't have it handy. It's on my shelf. But the, the the old uh, Starfleet technical manual, the big, the big, uh, the big paperback that came out. Gosh, was that late seventies, early eighties? Yeah, classic. I have like classic four stuff. different versions of that on my shelf. Yeah, believe it uh, or not. Very nice. I love Easter eggs like that. People and, will yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, it's just so. I mean, we 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 dropped a lot of Easter eggs this year. <laughs> like I, I don't know if the fans are going to find them all, but uh, it's always fun to when, when they when they post on some random message board hey did you see page 47 of this blah, blah, blah. Like, oh yeah you found it finally <laughs> someone found it of course there's so many easter eggs in these books that like i've forgotten a bunch of them and like yeah uh, i'll because i have i told you i have such a short memory for these books i'll go flipping through a book and I'm like what is that I, oh yeah i forgot about that uh anyway so uh that is utopia planitia chapters one two three and five that is a deep dive into those four chapters next time we'll be talking about chapter four in more detail with uh uh, certainly Aaron and Michael and myself, Al, you're certainly going to be part of that. If you want to be part of it, I don't know. I think we'll and get Thomas. Thomas back as well. I think yeah, Thomas, Thomas Maroney will be on board. Because well. yeah, we're going to be talking about all those different space frames that we were able to cram into here. So uh, all right, let's, let's, do uh, our let's wrap it up here. So Al, Aaron, uh, as a tradition here on continuing mission, we'd like to say uh, thank yous to either uh, game stores or anything appropriate. Uh, so uh, Al, who would you like to thank this time around? Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out uh, to Jetpack Comics and Games up here in New Hampshire. Um, we're currently uh, putting together a what we call Spocktoberfest, um, and we're going to be doing some STA stuff uh, towards the end of October. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Man, I got to visit you sometime. That'd be fun. Very cool. Uh, Aaron? I'll, I'll shout out my long-suffering wife who has put up with uh, <laughs> my my star trek obsession and kind of shares in it in in some regards so uh you know thank you darlene well i can't be one up by that so i'm, I'm gonna have to thank my wife who yesterday started watching deep space nine never seen it so, so she sat down watched the first episode quite happy tonight when this is done we go move on to episode two so i'm, I'm so happy that to uh, hear about I'm that I'm so proud to have like a, a Star Trek fan for, for, for a wife, because we were watching lower decks, the the last episode of lower decks, which was the first episode of season three. Yeah. And we both were cheering with uh, Zephyr and Cochran launching in the Phoenix. We were just, <laughs> yes, yes. It was <laughs> Magic Harbor ride. Oh, and uh, John, just, Oh, good. Go ahead. Go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was saying, um, so John, you're coming in. We're just doing our thank yous. I already thanked you anyways, just when you fell off, but we'll get your thank yous. I have to give it a thank out to the fans real quick. Viking Hobby in Sacramento, Earl Wynn Rubsom, uh, and then Troy, Troy, one of our players, Captain Jalil, he wanted to shoot out Voss Media Board Game Cafe near Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah, Michigan there. And then lastly, Gmo Ward Game HQ in Oklahoma City who's owned by Ron Palmateri, Brian Doherty, Darren Minard, and Michael Kirk. Is that not a cool game name? Perfect. <laughs> All right, John, who's your shout outs to? And then Jim, we'll let you wrap it up. Um, 
Yeah, I think my shout outs too uh, to this wonderful storm we've got outside. Uh, but no, um, I think right now my shout outs are just to to Jim for always being there to let me talk to him and for me to shoot ideas off of to my fellow writers because we all everybody did a great job. I mean, um, to say that this is a collaborative effort really underscores just how much we bounce things off each other and being able to toss the ball to someone and be like, Hey, I've got this idea, but I'm not sure it's really good. And being able to hear people say, you know, give good advice, point out what's wrong with it, point out what's great about it. And also just big shout out to the fans. I mean, if you ever go on Twitch and you just look for Star Trek games and you see such raw enthusiasm um, and really you were the ones that let us know like what we're doing right. And you guys let us know how much you love our stuff and can't thank you enough for it. Hard to hard to pass that up, or hard to hard to pick up after that. But that was a great uh, great send off. Uh, everything you said, I would have said anyway. I always try to thank the fans for being such gracious fans, being so supportive of each other, especially uh, because I, I see it all the time on uh, on all the different uh, social medias that new people come into the game and they're curious, they're asking questions, and constantly there's always a stream of fans of the game who are giving suggestions, giving advice, helping out. Um, you know, providing reviews, providing input on on uh, on stuff to go think about. So always a shout out to the fans. Can't thank you enough. Um, and then, uh, you know, just selfishly, I'll say thank you to the writers, uh, not on just this book, but all the Star Trek Adventures books. Uh, this one was interesting, though, because this was this was one of the more collaborative books that we've done in terms of um, I had an outline as we were going into the development of it. But I really left it open ended and said, look, what other ideas do you have? How do we make this even better? How do we make it a more comprehensive toolkit? And uh, you all had great ideas. We, we, we found places to fit them and everybody, you know, grabbed assignments when they could and, and started writing and, uh, and somehow it all came together. And, you know, as, 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 as it does, sometimes it didn't turn into just a big pile of hash, right? It was, it was actually, it actually all worked and it's all together. So a uh, big gracious thank you to all the, all the writers. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job as a, as an acquisitions editor uh, to, to also note, you know, if you're paying attention to these, to this video in particular, but some of the other ones too, like there's tidbits in here that you can pull out. If you want to be, if you want to write for Star Trek Adventures, certainly reach out to me, but like use these folks as examples. Look what they've done. They've made themselves subject matter experts on their content. Aaron's the science technology spaceship guy. Al took it upon himself to go research Star Trek online and translated that, that knowledge into stuff that we can use in the game. So like make yourself smarter about star trek like if you're passionate about it because like all these folks is passionate about it everybody i go call out to over and over again to do, to work on the game they're passionate about star trek and the game and uh, that's what we need like we don't just need somebody to to write you know ten thousand words because it's a job like that's not fun <laughs> like who wants to do that right you know you do it because you love it and uh, and we'll i'll get you into the book somehow or into a product somehow so please reach out to me um, anyway, that being said, we are done. So next time we'll be talking about chapter four, um, all about the different space frames that are in this book. So I hope you've had a great time. Right. Michael, get us out of here. Sign us out. All right, everyone. I-D-I-C. Peace out. Love y'all. Live long and prosper. Be safe. Be well. We'll see you next time. <laughs>